Green Lights On, September the 30th of 2018, our lesson number 41, and we're looking this morning at adultery, adultery as Christ talks about it from Matthew chapter 5, and uh, we're going to try to get through 27 and, and 30. Last week, I didn't quite <clears throat> finish up entirely with um, the last couple of verses in our lesson last week. Uh, which just dealt uh, with uh, reconciliation primarily. In verses 25 and 26 from Matthew, I'm just going to touch on, and I'm going to read just to finish that thought up, because we move right in, we leave murder and move to adultery. So, But he says in 25, he says, Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way in order that your opponent may not deliver you to the judge and the judge to the officer, and you be thrown into prison, truly I say to you, you shall not come out there of there until you have paid the very last cent. These two verses, uh, if you read them, you'll probably agree, and I think they are, they're really just commentary on the previous two verses that we went into great depth on. That's all the, this information is, really. But it does bring home some interesting points because he talks about, for instance, at the time, and he indicates that the time for reconciliation in a situation is now, whatever that means in that situation. And when it's on your mind and if there's any way, in other words, we could just simply say, the sooner the better. If there's something you can do or say or a contact you can make before the devil can do further work, and putting things in people's minds that most often just aren't even true. We wind up doing all this shadow boxing, you know, about maybe how we've been offended when it's really not true or what somebody's motivation and intent was toward us. That's the devil's work. You know, we just need to deal with the facts and look forward to a time, if it's a relational thing, when we can identify with that person face-to-face and just deal with the issues and get it right. And that's what, what the emphasis is. So you see that the the command to reconcile here is given to the innocent party as well as the guilty party. Okay? And that's interesting to note. You can't follow on this thing. Well, they're the ones who offended. They're the offenders, so they need to take the first step. No, uh, the church of God, uh, which we are members of as believers, we take the high ground on that. Uh, we, we take the initiative on that. We, we're, we're the ones who move forward on that to make it right. Why? Well, simple enough. It's God's command. That's what He's teaching us to do. And that's the right thing to do. In that day and time when Christ was talking about this, the people would have understood clearly that that Roman law during that time uh, was structured so that once a case went to court, once the court had that case, that was it. The court had to decide. So that's why Jesus couches this encouragement or this command, if you will, in that way while you're on the way to court, okay? Once you get there and you make the complaint uh, under Roman law, they're going to finish it. Once you put it in their, in their, in their court, as, as would be proper to say, they're going to finish it. So you only have a, a window even there. And even nowadays, I think that would apply. We only have a, a window before other things, whatever they are, they start happening and the ball kind of starts rolling that we really don't want to be, we don't want that ball to start rolling, if you follow me, until, if we have an opportunity to fix it, okay, to make it right with our brother or whatever. 
So this again is really commentary on those first two verses that we went in to detail with. And they too speak of the heart and they speak of responsibility. Knowing what God requires from us. Knowing what He requires from us. And we can move forward. That's not fun a lot of times, is it? Maybe we've already been met with some level of resistance or difficulty. And of course, he's talking about a case there where there is guilt, okay? That there's something that we need to respond to. We just have to settle it that we're human, that we do make mistakes. We don't always say things at the right time. We don't always say the most timely thing. We might not always have our, our tone right. It's just whatever. But we do you know, what we can do with folks we, you know, to bear our heart with them so that they truly know who we are and what we mean and what the intent of our heart is. That's a very important thing to do and to be able to, to realize. The Bible speaks of God granting patience in the life of believers to be able to deal with folks in that way, to be able to deal with them. So, God has equipped us and we can receive His equipping and be obedient to what He's given us. Last week, we're back to today, last week we looked at the fact that, in, at least in our minds and in our hearts, that we're all guilty of murder. That is, if we've displayed any kind of a hateful anger towards someone, that kind of anger that just kind of relegates that person literally to hell. It says they're, they're not any good, they're of no good, they're of no use. Uh, the world would be better off without them. I, I don't really care if something bad happens to them or whatever. Christ calls that kind of attitude. He calls that kind of thought process into question and says plainly, then you're guilty. If that kind of anger has emerged out of your heart, then you are guilty. Well, this week we look at another heart sin, if you will, and uh, that's the sin of adultery. As Christ brings up this issue, now we said that He takes... In these six things that we'll be looking at, the first two, he, he pulls right from the Ten Commandments. He starts there, and then he kind of moves down and gets all the way down into just really the, the rabbinical traditions and so forth, and he challenges that before we're through with the study. But here he brings this up, and he talks about this. So the realization that we are all guilty is really just absolutely necessary in order for us to continue looking within and not just without. Okay, and that's what he wants us to do. That was his whole purpose for bringing this, this teaching forward. We have to consider literally our position before the Lord. So again, we focus on the heart. We focus on what's going on within us. Our heart and what lies within. And you will recall that the heart, you know, is the, it's the seat of the soul as well. It includes both the emotions of people, you know, those things that drive us from deep within, as well as the mind. It includes that by definition when we, when we study it. Anger from last week and what we look at this week, sexual lust are the two most powerful influences that people deal with, apparently. They're, uh, by and large, I think there are some who might maybe fall on the, uh, the side of maybe fame and notoriety. Maybe that dominates their life. Or maybe perhaps it may be a monetary issue, materialism. That seems in some people to dominate their lives apart from any of this other stuff. And they might be the exception. So I agree with the, the commentators 
that these two things probably do serve and make up the, the bulk of that which seeks to dominate us, these two particular areas, anger and sexual lust in the lives of men and women. Certain church fathers from the past, as I studied, and this was interesting, they, they, they tried to escape, if you will, immorality and lust that they were able to identify with in their own life. They knew the Scriptures, uh, but putting that into practice and, and we're literally when it comes down to changing what you think about became a difficulty for them. One literally became a hermit. and It says he relegated himself to the Egyptian desert where he lived for 35 years. For 35 years, his subsequent testimony was that during that 35-year time that he was never freed from the problem. He was never freed from the temptations. And the reason was because he took his heart with him when he went <laughs> into the desert. So we have people who've taken those kinds of measures, not understanding Scripture, thinking that there's something you can do you know, to the outside to change the inside. And while the Scriptures later will give us some admonitions to do some practical things, uh, unless we come before the Lord and admit that these are realities in our life, these are things that bombard our life, these may in fact be things that we've been uh, uh, subject to, they may have worked themselves out in our life, if we're not willing to admit our guilt, and we're all guilty, if we're not willing to do that, then we might not be able to experience the level of forgiveness that we need to experience. doesn't mean that it's not there. It means that we don't understand it. We need to understand the fullness of what God has done. It's hard when we think about the fact that the only way we can get there is knowing just how deeply we need forgiveness. So these scriptures kind of take us there once again. Uh, the guy, or was it Oregon? O-R-I-G-E-N, is that right, Chris? Origin? I've heard it both ways, so it's origin. <laughs> okay. Um, along this same line, he ultimately had himself castrated because he just got, he thought that that would take care of the thought process in his life. He only did that after the practice of stripping himself down and rolling over and over briars and thorns and thistles and so forth did not prove effective. Okay, so he went to this other drastic measure. That's an element, a fact of history. How, and it, and it, I give you these two examples this morning to let you know how hard it is, how, you know, the depths that people want to go to to literally relieve themselves of temptation, relieve themselves of any area of guilt in their life. They want that to be taken away. They want to experience that burden, if you will, lifted. And the only way we get there where we can operate in life is knowing and understanding that He who knew no sin has been made sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him period. And when we get there and we realize that we can take our sins, that we can take even the thought sins, the things that, uh, have, that reveal that there is an element in our heart that's wrong, that's sinful, that shouldn't be there. Even though it might not have worked itself out. Against Christ's teaching here, we know that we're to identify that in our minds and we're to confess that. And we're to trust 
the blood of Christ over that as well because that is indeed our only hope. The Lord God judges the source of sin. Not just the manifestation of the sin or even the lack of that manifestation. He judges the source of that. The Bible says that He and He alone knows the heart of man. He speaks of those who come. They've got flowery speech. They've got religious speech. But He says, your hearts are far from Me. They're far from Me. I continue to run into people in my life who know the words. They know the religious talk, the religious lingo. But their lives have not changed. They literally think uh, that because something in their life hasn't worked itself out that they're not guilty. Christ says differently here. He says differently for us. So again, Scripture confronts us to look deep within and to consider our heart's condition. So for each of us today, and believe me, this study, this preparation, you know, it puts your teacher on his face first. It really does. And it causes us to ask the question, what does our heart allow? What do we make allowance for in our heart? You know, we do that, don't we? We kind of make inner deals, if you will, with ourselves and things that we allow. What does your heart desire? Do you desire something that doesn't reflect the love of Christ, that doesn't reflect mercy, that reflects selfishness, sinfulness in our life? And we just have to come clean with that because we stand before a Savior who's ready to forgive. We know that His blood has covered all of our sins. And we're talking relational here. You don't want to go to bed at night, do you? With knowing that unconfessed sin, undealt with sin still permeates your life. I say go to bed at night because I don't know if you're like me. You, even No matter what you've done during the day, right before you fall asleep, you've got this process that you, you go through. But even during, during the day, knowing that we need His fullness, we need His blessings if we're serving Him, and we know that we're involved in a battle in this life if we're ministering the Gospel, if we're preaching or teaching or serving or trying to be an influence in somebody's life for the cause of Christ. We're trying to do that. We need the power of God in our life. And the Word tells us that our sins continue. They separate us from God. They keep us from clearly hearing. They keep us from receiving the the full amount of His strength. I'm amazed sometimes at how God would continue to use me in a situation because He's placed me in a situation from time to time of opportunity for service and so forth. We realize our sinfulness before Him. I think Paul, more than anybody in Scripture, realized this because he continues over and not once, not twice, but at least three times He talks about Himself as being the chiefest of sinners and how He received grace. He says, I I received grace because I did things ignorantly. I didn't know. I didn't know. And yet we know that's not an excuse before God. Well, to be sure, we start with with a simple definition and you all know it, I'm sure. But when He talks about adultery, He's talking about, um, and this is true in the New Testament and Old Testament, the reference always deals with sexual intercourse between a man and a woman when one or both of them is married. And you see it in both books. That's the way it comes out. Jesus doesn't make reference here in this Scripture to the ancients like He did before when we were talking about murder, but the form is the same. It's just abbreviated. It's almost implied. 
that is the context of what he's talking about. He's comparing this against what the, uh, the um, uh, rabbinical instruction has revealed throughout the years that the people have been taught. And he takes again an example from the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, of course. What's this? The Seventh Commandment. Shall not commit adultery. But also you would have to go and look at what is it? Verse 17 of, of that same chapter when he talks about coveting. And there we see that this whole principle about what goes on in the mind doesn't just cover murder and adultery. He says whatever. Okay, whatever thing. He even talks about thefts and theft, or you want you covet somebody's manservant, or you want something they have, an animal or whatever. I guess nowadays a parallel to that would be a car or something. I don't know. But we don't do that. This issue of the heart. And we have to ask the question: Has God changed our heart? Do we truly think and act? Do we truly think differently? And has that changed the way that we act? Has that changed our words? Has it? And we focus on the Word of God to make this clear. Remember, it's the Word of God, the, the Word of God that reveals this when it talks about the, the sinew and the muscles and how it uses that physical example to get right down to the meat of it and expose, if you will, what our true motivations are. Most people say, i got enough to deal with. I, I don't want to go there. I just want to experience God's grace and forgiveness and get on down the road. And we'll say this, this uh, fuller sanctification and, and all this, we'll just save this to later. Maybe when I'm older and I don't have to work and family's grown up and I just don't have all those things pulling at me. No, that, that's not a good message. We, we want to come before God right now. We, we want to be cleaned up, if you will, right now. We want to be closer to Him. We want to be honest in evaluating ourselves and what motivates us within. And let the Lord God, through His Word, and it will always be through His Word, let Him change that in us. Nobody came to Christ and all of a sudden, poof, you were, you were there. You were mature in the Lord. Nobody in this room. So we acknowledge that process. And Jesus addressed the sanctity of life and what we looked at last week. So this week He addressed the sanctity of marriage and the danger that begins even between our ears. Our world today is dominated by destructive influences of sex because of its permissiveness, because of its perversions, and all of those, those things dominate. Would you agree? They dominate our society right now. They dominate. We sell products with sex on TV in some fashion, don't we? Do we not? It may be veiled, but it's, it's there. Sometimes it's not so veiled. Sometimes it's not. That's the world that we live in. But it's nothing new. It's not like we've stumbled into that all of a sudden. Just because today we live in an area of unbridled indulgence and sexual passion. We do. That's a fact. But it's nothing new. Paul faced the same thing where? You know where? Where? Roman society, specifically when we think of uh, churches with sexual problems, we think of Corinth. And that's true, and there's significant information in the Scripture, both in his uh, first and second letters there as we have them. Actually, there were four letters, but this is what he addressed. In fact, I've heard it taught before from a great guy I used to listen to, and he was a part of my church, Dr. Walton McMillan, who literally preached from the Greek New Testament. He had a Greek... New Testament there when he taught. 
And he said that in that day that an, a phrase actually emerged regarding the Corinthians, he said, and people who were involved in this type of activity to excess, they were, it was referred to as those who Corinthianize. It became associated with them in such a fashion. And we see the depths and the root of this particular sin because it continued to invade the church. Those who had come to Christ out of paganism still had to deal with, address these temptations in their life, these activities. And we know the nature of sexual sin. Once you partake of it, and it becomes a part of your experience, it seems to be so pervasive in our life. What's that say? It's harder to get rid of. It's harder to get out of the mind. It's harder to get out of the realm of our experience. We can't, it, we can't do that like we can with other things. So it brings its own difficulties with it. It does. So Paul dealt with that. And it's interesting that he dealt with it just by calling it what it is. You call sin, sin, and you deal with it. You deal with it from the perspective of this is what the Word of God says, and if I'm to be, have victory over this, then I am going to have to do it based upon God's Word on the issue and God's encouragement on the issue, God's promise of forgiveness and cleansing on the issue. I'm going to do it on that. But you're not going to be able to do it on anything else. That's not to say that we're not supposed to change some things sometimes that keep us out of situations. Scripture bears that out too. But the bulk of it is done when we rely upon the Word of God and the truth of God to change us. Do you believe that? That's true. So many in Paul's day, they believed, much like people do today, that there were a number of different reasons why people yielded to sexual sin, whatever it was. Some said it was just biological. That, hey, this is the way uh, that it's uh, supposed to go. In fact, you know, there was a group that thought well, whatever you did in the body did not affect the spirit. Okay, that's part of Gnosticism. It's dualism. It's part of a, a number of things, but it was kind of a popular thing. Kind of can you have your cake and eat it too because one doesn't affect the other. And we know that that's not true. Not true at all. Some people nowadays, I've heard people talk about, uh, I remember when uh, we had a president one time who was caught, you know, and brought, brought uh, into question, you know, his conduct. He was actually impeached. And, you know, he gets on TV. This was done publicly, so we can mention it. It was done before the whole nation. He says, I did not have sexual relations with that woman. Then it became this whole big national conversation about, well, what, what actually is? What constitutes sexual relations? Okay? Well, Christ says He's thinking about it. That's what constitutes it. Because we didn't go there. I remember a guy trying to take up for the president during that time. He says, well, he just has this, what do you call it, some high libido or something. It's not his fault. It's a physiological thing. He can't help. In fact, his wife is complicit in this. She understands that and makes allowances. Really? They want to say, God made me this way. They want to say, well, I don't have an, an unfulfilled marriage. I have an unfulfilled marriage. Or they want to say, you just don't understand what I'm going through during this time. Uh, and they actually try to take uh, the situations that's going, that if they don't check, it's going to lead to adultery in their life. They try to take that and make that as something good. And you can't do that. Hebrews 13.4 says, Marriage is to be held in honor among all. And the marriage bed is to be undefiled. 
And then he adds that fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. We have to start with what the Word says about our actions. 1 Corinthians 6.15 Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? He's talking in a little different light, but the truth is the same. May it never be, he says. And then later, beginning with verse 19 of 1 Corinthians 6, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. Nothing. And there's nothing that we can do from a practical standpoint if, that will be effective if we don't first deal with what's going on within our hearts. I added that no effort such as hermitizing yourself, that's a term that I made up, okay? Hermitizing yourself. Physical mutilation or forced celibacy or any of those things can have any lasting impact on controlling the flesh if you, if you first haven't started here. Yeah, Chris? Mm. That neither, I mean, lists the first few are sexual sins, neither fornicators nor adulterers, and he lists all of those, will inherit the kingdom of God. I mean, you cannot, you cannot be a Christian, you cannot be saved if that is the lifestyle you're living. Yeah, he talks. Go ahead, sir. And here Christ is holding us to the standard that if you're living that way, even just in your head. Yeah. 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 Yeah, and I would make I would try to cut it just a little finer. You know, he's talking about people who are dominated by that. Not now I'm talking about just the temptation. I'm talking about that they've given over to that. Because later he'll say, uh, of such were some of you. We often want to look at that phrase and say what well, yeah, and think about the, the issue of homosexuality, and that is <laughs> that is a good verse to know in today's world when you're talking with people about homosexuality. But it's also true for those other things. That there is a change. There's a change that comes over people. Now, we know that temptation remains. We know that the flesh remains. We know that. But that's part of the process as well. Looking at somebody's heart and saying, even with that, knowing that I'm in the flesh, knowing that I'm uh, maybe even being uh, bombarded right now. And have you been through situations like that in your life where it's just intense i mean it drive you drive you to your knees whatever the the sin whatever the situation you know that for whatever reason it's an attack paul identifies those things he talks about toe holes and foot holes and things that, that come in to do damage in our life we can but confess those things and move on and trust the truth of god's word we first agree what he says we talk about the penalty that's why it says in Psalm 19 that by His Word I am warned. I'm warned by His Word. And He's given us that Word to help us grow and to keep us on track. That's what He's done. In chapter 5, verse 28, He gets into the meat of it. This is what He wants to say when He identifies the issue. Gets the people to thinking about adultery. He says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already 
committed adultery with her in his heart. He's already done that. And do you somehow, I mean this may seem simplistic, but do you literally picture Jesus sitting there and saying this? And perhaps even picture ourselves standing before Him and allowing His words in that scenario to to affect our heart? I mean, would it be any greater if we were standing there looking at Him physically than it is right now? I guess what I'm asking you, does the Spirit of God move upon your heart when you hear this Word? And does it drive you to look within just because of the desires? Lord, I want to be clean before You. I just want to be clean before You. If it involves forgiveness, great. Okay, that's, that's what I want. Convict my heart. Show me. Show me. God will answer that prayer. That's what He wants. He'll do that. The I here, He says, but I say to you is emphatic, I understand, indicating that Jesus puts His own Word above the authority of revered rabbinic tradition. He is speaking like they said of Him. He speaks as one who has authority. And they, if you will, for lack of a better term, they feel that. If you will, they experience that. They know what He's saying is true. They know that. And this word looks is an interesting word. And there's a lot of information because much of this, and you might say all oh, this verse hangs upon this right here. It's the Greek word blepo, B-L-E-P-O. And it means to look continuously. Not an incidental or, or voluntary glance. Nothing like that. But an intentional and repeated gazing. That's what it's talking about. And I copied something here I want to share with you from Charles Quarles in the, the book that I use from time to time in my preparation on the Sermon on the Mount by Quarles. This is what he says. It's pretty specific. I said, I'm just going to read this. Jesus offered a specific description of the lustful look that constitutes adultery of the heart. The look is not a fleeting glance that triggers a sexual thought that is then quickly dismissed from the mind. The look is a lingering look. The present participle could be translated everyone who keeps on looking. This is a sensual stare, a lustful gawking, he says. This has important ramifications for the application of Jesus' teaching. How so? He did not intend that men and women hide their eyes from any beautiful or handsome member of the opposite sex, nor did He teach that it was wrong to admire someone's appearance. The lustful look locks eyes on another person and uses him or her to fuel one's sexual imaginations. That's pretty specific. And he points out here, and I think rightly so, because of the words that Jesus used, he tells us a little bit about what it's not. Okay? You know, don't just because you recognize beauty in someone, and I, I would add, give God glory for that. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. It's when we go well beyond that. And as he says, and I think rightly so, allowing that to, to fuel some sort of sexual imagination. And he adds that you've already committed adultery. Note that the reality of adultery is first present in the heart. And then it's manifested with the look. It's already taken place. That cuts it a little bit thinner, doesn't it? It causes us again to focus specifically on the heart. That's what he does. We've already made allusions to, or references rather, to Matthew 15, 19 where Christ would say, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, 
false witness slanders. Much in the Bible about the heart. And a phrase that came to me, of course, a scripture was from Proverbs 4.23, which tells us plainly where the psalmist says, watch over your heart. Watch over your heart with all diligence. Take care of your heart. Take care of what you allow your heart to crave and desire. What you allow your heart to set itself upon. Then he adds, he says, for from it flow the springs of life. In other words, following what our heart has settled on has a huge impact on the most serious things in our life. The springs of life. Those things that come up out of us that affect our life, okay? From, the, from that point on. That's what he's talking about. And there are consequences for our actions. There are consequences, Christ would tell us, for our very thoughts. You've heard this before, sow a thought and reap an act. Sow an act, reap a habit. You sow a habit and you reap a character. You sow a character and you reap a destiny. What we are, what we become, starts from within. And that's why we pray and we ask for Christ when He's, we're praying for others. We, we, we think in terms of Christ changing their heart. When I pray for people who don't know Christ, I find myself praying for that. Do you? Lord, change their heart. Now we know that He has to reach down and draw them and put within their heart that desire. Well, I need to know more about this. this. This Word, this truth that I've heard, I don't understand it, I can't explain it, but it's gripped my heart. I, I want to hear more. It's unpleasant for me. It's uncomfortable for me. It's condemning for me. But the Word of God and the draw of God, God pulls that person. I, I pray for that. And I continue to pray for that in my life. I'm never going to get to the point where I don't need that kind of draw in my life. God's always going to move us based upon the truth of His Word. Well, how are we delivered? How are we delivered? You've heard these verses. Put them in application here. Galatians 5, 16, if you will. Paul says, but I say, walk in the Spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for a simple and succinct encouragement. That's one we can memorize. (laughs) Walk in the Spirit. Ask yourself, am I moving in the Spirit of God? And right then, the Spirit of God will enable you to identify, by contrast, whatever's going on in your mind, whatever you're pursuing, that's not of God. That's the power of God within us. That's the work of God's Word and the Holy Spirit within us. You will not carry out the desires of... That's pretty... It's pretty concrete. Again, Paul from Romans 13, 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put Him on. And make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lusts. So that is practical in nature, is it not? Something we need to be aware of. Something that tells us, now look, if I go there even in my mind, or if I go to that place physically, if I maintain this relationship or whatever, practically, then I'm going to be creating an environment that will lead me to a position where I might fall. He says, don't do it. Make no provision 
Job understood it. Job 31.1. Job said, I have made a covenant with my eyes. I like this. How then could I gaze at a virgin? Men and women, have you ever said to yourself, just don't look. Just don't look. Really. That's not silly. That's practical. Because in our day and time, there's a lot to look at. Right? There's a lot to look at. And it's not just on TV. It's at the mall. <laughs> okay, it's in our neighborhoods. And he says, just don't do it. Don't do it. I love what Daniel did. Daniel made up his mind. And I like what one scripture says is that Daniel purposed in his heart. He did the heart work. I like that translation. He purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank, so he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Daniel 8, or Daniel 1.8 rather. In Genesis, you know the story of Joseph. Joseph had the curse of being an attractive guy. Somebody people like to look at. Okay, some, a guy who was young and handsome and smart. and you know, The hand of God was on him. And a woman was trying to get him, as it says, she would say, come lie with me. Let's, let's do this thing. What did he say? How then could I do this? He called it what it was. He says, this great evil and sin against God. That's where it starts. Call it what it is. Identify the result of the action. How could I do that? And says so she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me, pleading with him. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and went outside. Run. Flee. Don't look. That's what the Scriptures are saying to us. Our society today looks at that. They hear me saying that this morning. They may be people who hear this maybe on a recording somewhere and they say, man, get in the 21st century. That's what they would say. What a danger. What a blindness. Now flee from youthful lust and pursue righteousness. Pursue faith, pursue love and peace for those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. This is what Paul told Timothy to do. And we're reminded of the encouragement from Scripture from 1 Corinthians 10.13. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will also be able to endure. It's not God's fault. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's very good. Uh, that's not just practical. That's, that is the Christian's response. I, I, I can't recall the Scripture, but where Paul says, think on these things, whatsoever things are of good report, and all those things that he lists. We actually have a list. <laughs> a very broad and specific list. You know, you find that when we look at that list, and we've been there before, you, you begin seeing, well, God, is, he's, working. he's already in my life in these areas. I wish I had it before me. I can't, who remembers the Scripture? I can't recall it. Okay, 
If somebody can find it, I'll let you read it if you want to find it. Christ, let me finish up. He gives us a... Hold that, we'll get to it at the end. He has a really just a stunning and shocking admonition. Okay, He says, listen, this is what He said. Now, He's trying to get the attention of His hearers in a mighty way. You got it? Go read it, please, sir. Very good. Say the scripture again. I someone didn't. Philippians four eight and nine. I want to make sure and got that on the tape too. Christ in his efforts to wake people up, to help them hear and see, he says, "If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell." If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you, for it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Jesus is speaking figuratively here, no doubt. I mean, it wouldn't even make sense to take it otherwise. You can cut off your right hand, you still got a left hand. Okay, you can poke out your right eye, you still got a left eye. He's just being dramatic. Okay, he's trying to make a point, and he does make the point. But the broader intent here. Is not the eye or the hand. It's for anything that might cause us to be more susceptible to temptation. Anything. Identify it. Identify it. In that day, the right hand was the strong hand. The hand of greeting. The one that bestowed blessing. The one that sealed agreements. He's just being dramatic here for effect. He's speaking the truth. I remember a friend of mine who worked and served in Lockheed. He taught classes in the Middle East and became acclimated to that culture over there. This whole thing about cutting somebody's right hand off if they steal, that has pretty significant uh, implications. And the way he explained it to me, I don't know if you read about it in the book, he said, they have a thing over there called the communal bowl. And it's a place where people put extra food and so forth so that the poor can come by and get the food out of that bowl if they need to, if they're destitute. You can only reach into the bowl with your right hand because the left hand is considered the, un, the unclean hand. You can only reach into there. Can you imagine? You lose your right hand. Pretty much going to lose your job, probably. Now you're destitute. Now you can't even reach into the communal bowl because you don't have a right hand to do it with. It was significant. So Christ is using this to get, get their attention. This word stumble is the Greek word scandalizo. And it means to cause to fall. And it's related to like springing a trap. And he says, if your right hand makes you stumble. Okay, if your right eye makes you stumble. That's what he's talking about. We may not have to do that. We may not have to sever a hand, but we may have to sever a relationship, right? We may have to stop going somewhere where we like to go. And it's okay to go there, but we know if we go there, it's not going to be good. It's not going to be good. There'll be temptation afoot. Don't go there. That would go right in line with making no occasion, would it not? Making no provision for the flesh. Paul tells us in Romans 6, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you may obey its lust. I mentioned that just to say we can and are encouraged, we're commanded to get on top of this issue. That there is hope. We're not just to sit back. Okay, We're to call it what it is and get on it. And do it to 
an understanding of God's Word and a reliance upon His Word. Our hearts, according to Matthew 5-6, we've already looked at, should reflect that we have a heart that hungers and thirsts for righteousness. That's what our heart hungers and thirsts for. All people are guilty of murder and adultery. The standard that Christ sets forth is impossible to achieve on our own. We cannot do it. So why? Why do we even have that? Because this reality is purpose to cause us to cry out to Him. We cry out in despair of our own righteousness and we seek His righteousness, His forgiveness, His grace. I don't know where I got this, but on this, this issue of keeping our hearts clean, particularly in the area of adultery, being mindful not to get in situations, I'll share it with you today. Listen. It's simple. Do not, in your marriage, do not give away anything that belongs to your spouse. Anything. Anything emotional. Anything physical. Anything. Do not give away anything that belongs to your spouse. And also, do not receive anything that belongs to the spouse of another. That's a little simple axiom for me. I don't remember where I, where I got it, where I heard it, but it seems to work in the early stages of temptation, if you will. Lord, we pray.